Hey everybody, it's Nathaniel Avila reporting from Dallas County and I'm here with Ruby with a pencil. With Hi everyone, I'm also reporting from Dallas County. Hello. So what, what, what month is it today, Ruby? We are in the month of September, but specifically um, Hispanic Heritage Month began yesterday, mm -hmm. November 15th. So happy Hispanic Heritage Month. Yay! And what better way to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month than talking about Mexican Our history. Hispanic heritage. <laughs> yeah, in U.S. So where did we leave off last time? Um, so last time we left off, um, it was World War II. We were talking about all of the Mexican-Americans who fought alongside you know, everyone else during World War II. And we went over some very decorated, um, you know, Mexicans that came came from that. Mm -hmm. So and I think now we're going to talk some more a little bit about World War II. Yeah, World War II is such a big and influential era in American history that there's a lot to uh, touch upon. Um, so we talked about the men. So let's talk about the women, Ruby. Mm -hmm. Are you ready to hear about the women? Yes, I am. So the women played a highly important role during World War II, entering the initial workforce in record numbers to fill crucial manufacturing positions left empty by the departing soldiers. So additionally, countless Mexican-American women joined the Women's Army Corps, waves, and other all-female auxiliary units in the military. It is estimated thousands of Mexican-Americans found jobs in the defense industries during the war, though they still often encountered anti-Mexican prejudice in the job market, despite Franklin Roosevelt's 1941 Executive Order 8802 which barred discrimination in defense industry hiring. Nevertheless, the war's insatiable demand for war ultimately become, overcame employers' reluctance to hire Mexican-Americans. Soon, thousands of Mexican-American women across the country had joined the workforce as, the, as a Rosita the Riveter. So, Yay. yeah, so how does that, how does that sound? We all know Rosita the Re Riveter. Actually, I think she was called Rosie the Riveter, but for Mexican-Americans, they call her Rosita the Riveter. Right. Yes. <laughs> so basically, there was um, not just um, Caucasian women that were in these positions, because that's mainly what history um, teaches in, in classrooms. And like we said, we understand that there's not a lot of time to discuss everything in classrooms. So that's why we're here. And it wasn't just Caucasian women. It was also Mexican women, you know, filling these roles. Yeah. And that's it. Just those two. Well, no, I'm sure. No, there's more. <laughs> so The point is, it wasn't just what you normally learn about. Right. So in addition to efforts of the formal job market, Mexican-American women made significant uh, material and moral contribu uh, contributions through the formation of wartime community organizations. These organizations aimed to support American troops abroad, but specifically the young Mexican-American soldiers from local barrios, 
A few community projects consisted of cooperation between Mexican-American and Anglo neighborhoods. Yet, the vast majority of Mexican-American home front activities were organized separately from those in, of the white community. One of these organizations of the Spanish-American Mothers and Wives Association of Tucson um, sought to roll bandages, raise money for veter for veteran center after for uh, for after the war's end, and write letters to help the the boys fight their internal battle of loneliness. The organization peaked at 300 members during the war, and other organizations such as Phoenix's uh, Lenadores del Mundo organized wartime festivals and collected rubber for the war effort but also sought to fight against the still rampant racism and discrimination experienced by the community. So yeah, that's what they're so doing. Like everybody was coming together during this time or trying to come together during this time for one cause, which was to fight against fascism, mm -hmm. Hitler, you know, Nazi Germany. Yeah. But they still face discrimination. Yeah. And also Hirohito for in the imperial japanese and mussolini right. with the in the Italy. access powers yeah is what they're called yeah so yeah. but they were all fascists pretty much yeah <laughs> so let's talk about this major murder that happened in late 1942 during world war ii so, California Governor Colbert Olson, who was facing a tough re-election battle against future incumbent Earl Warren, sent a memo to the Los Angeles County's law enforcement agencies during, ordering them to launch a vicious campaign against the city's youth gangs. And we all know what that means. Wink, 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 wink. What does that mean? <laughs> So under these orders, the office of the Los Angeles County District Attorney decided to use August 2nd, 1942, death of Jose Gallardo Diaz, a Mexican-American youth, as a, as a test case to launch a new war against juvenile delinquencies by turning the investigation into a major media event. So in the weeks following Diaz's death, the LAPD launched a mass launched mass raids in Mexican and African American neighborhoods. So arresting more than 600 young men and women to be held in custody and interrogated. The Los Angeles press hailed the arresting officers as heroes. Do you think they're heroes, Ruby? Um no. What? Why? Explain yourself. <laughs> Um, I guess maybe I didn't understand the last part. No, they, they were just interrogating them after raiding them. That's it. That was all they did. Oh. <laughs> then no. I mean, I don't really count that as heroic. What? But, but they got these people off the street that didn't do anything. That didn't do anything. <laughs> so they were just bothering people. <laughs> So, as a result of their often brutal interrogations of the uh, adolescents... Oh, these were also uh, minors that they were doing this to. Um, <clears throat> the police announced that they had the murderers. 22 alleged members of the 38th Street Gang and two female accomplices. The public discourse in California surrounding the arrest of the youth 
was viciously racist and high-profile debates emerged whether Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were culturally, politically, intellectually, and biologically capable with, with living within a white, civilized, democratic society. Sounds like the same BS. What are you What are you thinking? I'm. I don't know why. I don't know why. There's. They seem to be targeting. You know pe these uh, people of color, and they're never actually getting to a solution. Is my problem? Mm -hmm. It's like all of these things happen. Because they have this whole, you know, problem that they're trying to solve. And then the problem still doesn't get solved. Right. And then people's lives end up getting ruined. Yeah. What would, what would you say to people who say that they don't know if Mexican-Americans were culturally, politically, or intellectually capable of living within a white society? I'd say that there's so many, so much proof to show otherwise. I mean, because... They've been there for years now. I mean, we've been, immigrants have been working the field. Immigrants have been living among, you know, white society to begin with. So it's it's really them just not wanting it. They just yeah. want to be segregated. Everything that we talked, like a bunch of stuff that we've talked about here on this podcast can say otherwise. And right. And it's funny that back then so many people were for segregation. Mm-hmm. Then now that people can't go into gyms or some fast food places or whatever without being vaccinated, they consider that segregation and they're not for that. Mm -hmm. It's like we're only okay with segregation when it has to do with people of color. Mm -hmm. That's what it sounds like. And it's yeah. Like... <laughs> and and most what happened was is that we were already here in the southwestern states, and then they came mm -hmm. over. And then they're like, this is our stuff, Lau. Right. Right. So let's talk about the resulting criminal trial, which is called The People versus Zamora, which is infamous for its fundamental denial of due process. Of the 24 charged youth, 17 were indicted on the murder charges and placed on trial. The courtroom was small during the trial, the, dis the defendants were not allowed to sit near or communicate with their attorneys. None of those charged were permitted to change their clothes during the entirety of the trial by order of the presiding judge, Charles W. Uh, Frick, Frick, at the Mexicans, uh, yeah, at the request of the district attorney. So what do you think about that? Uh, what happened to the Constitution? Uh, it doesn't apply. <laughs> your right to trial and your right to have someone to present, I mean, uh, to, you know, um, the right to an attorney. And they weren't allowed to change their clothes either, so they must be really smelly. So they must be really smelly. That's that sounds bad on all levels. That sounds yeah. like um, they're not following the Constitution. Mm -hmm. So Judge Frick 
also permitted the chief of the Foreign Relations Bureau of the Los Angeles Sheriff's Office, E. Duran Ayers, to testify as an expert witness that Mexicans as a community had a bloodthirst and a biological predisposition to crime and killing, citing the supposed human sacrifice practiced by their Aztec ancestors. What do you think about that? They were bringing something up about the Aztecs. Yeah. That was like years and years and years and years ago. Mm-hmm. That was no, they're no longer alive. Like that tribe was completely killed off. Right. I don't know what relevance that has. Uh, it's supposed to show that Mexicans are naturally evil, Ruby. Oh, yeah? So what about whenever all the colonizers came over and murdered thousands of Native Americans? Uh, Don't worry about that. Uh, Don't don't worry about that. And their buffalo. No, shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. And the many slaves that they brought over and shackled. Uh, 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 I gotta go. Bye. (laughs) They even did that to themselves in Europe. Yeah, exactly. They were, like, constantly fighting over money and power, mm-hmm. killing each other off. The kings would kill each other off. Oh, my well, God. That's why I love watching those movies, like, about, you know, the Renaissance periods and the medieval times over there in Europe because there was so much drama. Mm-hmm. And, like, back then, you couldn't really uncover stuff unless, like, you knew, you know, the whole story. And a lot of stuff was uncovered after the fact, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like, someone was poisoned, and then King Henry, who would just, like, kill all his wives, like... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, just because they wouldn't give him a son. Like, bear him a son. <clears throat> yeah, so, like, yeah, the Vikings would come over, and they killed a bunch of people in Northern Europe and in and in the United Kingdom. Uh, the Romans, con- like, just basically destroyed, like, a lot of Europe. Alexander the Great destroyed a lot of, like, Europe as well. And in uh, also with uh, in the Middle East and in Northern Africa, so yeah, you don't be throwing stones in glass glass houses. Yeah, <laughs> stones in glass houses. Yeah. So after Judge Frick's guilty verdict in January, because I mean, what else would he say? The Mexican American youths were imprisoned. The the Mexican-American community was outraged and several attorneys challenged Judge Frick's decisions. The famous journalist, Carrie McWilliams, noted that a few months earlier, over 120,000 Japanese-Americans were detained and interned in detention camps and argued that that there were common links between the Japanese-American internment and the the anti-Mexican response to the Sleepy Lagoon case. In October 1944, a state court of appeals unanimously decided the evidence was not sufficient to sustain a guilty verdict. It reversed all 12 of the defendant's convictions and directly criticized Frick for his bias in and mishandling of the case. So what do you think? So they actually found out that the judge was was guilty of mishandling the case? Uh-huh. And what happened there? They reversed it. They just reversed all their uh, convictions, so they were released from prison. For how long were they stuck in prison, though? I don't know. Like, for a while. Um, It looked like they were in there for, like, two years. 
Yeah, what sucks about that is that we still have judges to this day who are still very racist and there you will be surprised on how many people are wrongfully convicted and spend years and years and years in prison. Mm-hmm. Like, remember Ben Spencer? He yeah. had been in prison for like almost 40 years mm-hmm. for a crime he did not commit. Did he, did he ever get released? He got released oh. um, finally before the 40th year. Mm-hmm. And, but he's still having to go to court and stuff like that. Like there's still um, things that he has to clear up under his name, but it's like, so he, yeah, because he would have to get all of his. He got, has to get I'm his record expunged. I'm fucking innocent, yeah. and y'all are making me go through all this still, yeah. and they're not giving him any kind of assistance. They yeah. ruined his life. He has no life after being in jail that long. So, let's talk about something that happened in the 1940s, which is when Amer- Mexican American youth had grown up fully immersed in Mexican popular an American popular culture including films music and other media when they came of age these youths diverged from the expectations of both their parents and dominant society by using culture and fashion to undermine the norms of American segregation and white supremacy supremacy so these are like the counterculture kids. These are like the teenagers who are like, we're not going to stand up to you, society. So these teens developed their own music, language, and dress. For boys called uh, bachucos, the style was to wear a flamboyant long coat known as the zoot suit. <laughs> With baggy pegged pants, a pork pie hat, a long keychain, and shoes with thick soles. Oh yeah, man. Pretty style, pretty snazzy, yeah. right, Ma- right, right, Ruby? It's styling. So let me see if I can find a photo of these types of suits. So let's see. Let me show you. Okay, here's the screen. Here's a picture of two people wearing a zoot suits in Washington, D.C. with a soldier in 1942. And these are Mexican-Americans? I don't know. It might be the Flash that might have, like, lined up their, like, their skin or something. I don't know. It's in black and white. Mm-hmm. It's in black and white, the photo, but, mm-hmm. um, I mean, they look like they're Caucasian. I mean, they could be mixed. I don't know, but it says a soldier with two men wearing zoot suits in Washington D.C. in 1942. Mm-hmm. The, sh- the soldier's like checking them out. Like, yeah. Hey, like wow, man. this guy's got flies. Like fly. Yeah. Look at that coat. Mm-hmm. That- um. So yeah, it looks like the pants are kind of baggy. Um. Mm-hmm. And the jacket is. Of course, like a blazer. It looks like it's like two sizes too big. But it's like, yeah, it's it's kind of like sitting off their shoulders, and it goes almost to like the knees, mm-hmm. the bottom of the coat. Um, I don't know, I like it. Yeah, snazzy. I think it's pretty snazzy too. So yeah, that's uh. It's different, suit. you know. I love it when people take 
certain styles and they make it their own. Mm -hmm. Because they don't, like you said, they don't want to conform to the standards of society. Oh, yeah, that was their whole deal. I really wish people would be more open to that now. And I really wish people would understand that clothes and shoes don't belong to any particular person. Mm -hmm. Like anybody could wear anything because it's literally clothes oh you mean like when harry styles and kid cuddy wore dresses skirts and skirts and, yeah well kid cuddy wore a dress for snl to pay tribute to kurt cobain yeah he wore a skirt like a big black skirt at a new york fashion week just right. this past week um so yeah i mean people can, should be able to wear whatever they want mm-hmm. you know just, just clothes oh yeah <laughs> I know. I think who was the person who posted him wearing uh, major makeup? Who knew major was it makeup? like eye makeup? Oh, at the Met Gala. Oh, okay. He had just uh, black around his eyes, uh-huh. like black black shadow with like kind of little sparkly um, glitter, and then he had uh, neon green hair. His his hair was dyed neon green. Mm. Um. So, yeah, I mean, people can express themselves however they want. It's it's the joy about, you know, living is you get to do various things. Oh, yeah. With art and fashion mm-hmm. and how to express yourself. You should be able to express yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, if people can express themselves in hateful ways, why shouldn't other people be able to express themselves with their clothing and what they wear on their face? Mm-hmm. So, the style was meant to serve as a rebuke of American assimilation and war efforts to conserve materials like fabrics. So, meanwhile, girls called bachucas wore black drape jackets, tight skirts, fishnet stockings, and heavily emphasized makeup. For the bachucas, participation in the movement was a way to openly challenge conventional emotions of feminine beauty and sexuality, especially in traditional Mexican culture. In both instances, the zoot suitors were considered un-American. Because of what they wore? Yeah. <laughs> so let me show you a picture of what the women were wearing. Okay, there they are. During the Zoot Suit riots, U.S. Navy sailors beaten. Oh my God! But yeah, that, these are. This was what the women were wearing at the time. So it looks like a cardigan. Mm-hmm. And they button it up like in the middle. I don't. I can't really see what they're wearing underneath because it's like a close-up photo and i can only see mainly like their waist up mm-hmm. but um i don't even see that they're wearing a lot of makeup either yeah it might be because it's in black and white and we can't really yeah, see if anything yeah if anything they're wearing wet eyeliner and yeah. I, I guess lipstick but i can't tell because it's in black and white yeah i see some some things underneath the eyebrows but i can't really can't really tell mm-hmm. but oh, yeah like the eyeshadow or something mm-hmm but yeah, that's that's what they were wearing. So, 
This sentiment created issues in Los Angeles where a new Navy base was installed in Chavez Ravine, a segregated Mexican-American neighborhood of Los Angeles. This brought over 50,000 service men members into a largely Latino neighborhood, many of whom were white and from areas with few Mexican-Americans. The sailors who frequently, frequently walked through the Chavez Ravine neighborhood on their way to the bars in downtown Los Angeles would harass the zoot-suited youth for their seemingly disrespectful attitudes. As the anti-Mexican atmosphere surrounding the Sleepy Lagoon murder trial grew more intense over the course of 1943, minor attacks by Navy sailors against Mexican-American boys became an almost daily occurrence. So what makes you what what do you have to say about that? What disrespectful behavior did they have other than the fact that they were dressed differently? Yeah, like they were think... Yeah, they were dressed in an un-American way. Cuz they said they're disrespectful attitudes like I, w I would like to hear. I would like to know what that was. I'll be like, "Hi, how are you doing today?" "What did you say to me?" Ba ba ba. So let me see. How dare you speak to me, mudblood? Wow. <laughs> Wasn't well, that isn't that considered to be a very racist term in Harry Potter? Yeah, I mean, it's basically like I don't know how you would I don't know if you would consider it like how you would call it racist. It's it's it doesn't have to do with race. It has to do with magic. Like if you were born. I thought with, it had to do with genealogy. Uh, has to do with yeah, your, like your family. Yeah, it does have to do with genealogy because they say um, it's like you have non-magic family. Like you mm -hmm. were born of a non-magic family. Yeah. Like none of your family members have magic. I guess it's kind of like an elitist thing where they would say like kind of like how you would call a poor person like a yeah. bum or a hobo. It's more like, yeah, like it's more like a class thing, I mm -hmm. guess. So in June 1943, these tensions exploded into one of the worst race riots in the city's history. After, me after a Mexican-American boy raised his hand in a way that a soldier considered to be threatening, the man- Raising and his hand? It was just like high five. And then he was like, how dare you? <laughs> and his friends attacked the boy. This wow. sparked a skirmish in the street, which ended quickly after the initial sailor had his nose broken. That night, hundreds of sailors went into the neighborhood and attacked every Mexican-American boy they could find. They could just be doing nothing. They would attack them. So, over the next 10... Through the violence. Mm -hmm. For the next 10 straight days, the Navy sailors went into Ch the Chavez Ravine, downtown Los Angeles, and even East LA, dragging, beating and stripping naked every zoot suit boy out in public as some some as young as 12 and 13 years old what the hell and these were grown men yeah they're attacking teenagers these were like grown uh navy soldiers that is despicable mm-hmm despicable so the white los angeles press cheered on the racist attacks even printing guides on how to zoot suit how to de-zoot a zoot suitor meaning how to take off their clothes yeah my god 
you see the shit that was permitted like and encouraged mm -hmm. so the lapd responded by joining the sailors arresting hundreds of zoot suitors both teenage boys and girls and charging them with disturbing the peace they were disturbing the peace uh, the ones that were being stripped of their clothing were disturbing the peace and beaten yeah and let me guess, they were also charged with indecent exposure, even though they weren't the ones that were undressing themselves. Yeah, probably. Fuck sakes, bro. Mm -hmm. Shame on you, LAPD. <laughs> shame, shame, shame. Mm -hmm. So progressive activists at the time, such as Carrie McWilliams, blamed the riots on William Randolph Hearst's proto-fascist promotion of anti-Mexican hysteria during the Sleepy Lagoon murder trial. Scholars, however, have focused on the complex social matrix operating within the uh, within Los Angeles at the time, and interpret the riots as an example of the social cleavages within the segregation era U.S. So yeah, not looking any good. You have anything to say about that? Not anything more that I could say that mm. I not have already said. Yeah. Well, congratulations, because World War II formally ended on September 2nd, 1945, after the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the final surrender, surrender of Japan to the Allied powers. Hooray! World War II is <laughs> over. Hooray? Not, I mean, like, yeah, the war is over, but damn... That's what it came to. That's what we had to do. We had to bomb Japan twice and kill several innocent people. Yeah, because at the time, the yeah, because at the time the Japanese Empire was not backing down. So uh, Truman had to make a very difficult decision whether to either just bomb them and force them to surrender. Or continue dragging this war on until who knows when. Fighting. Yeah, yeah, it sucks that it had to come to that, is what I'm saying. Like, Yeah. So when they dropped the first bomb in Hiroshima, the Japanese still wouldn't surrender. So the next week they bombed them again, and then they're like, okay, fine, we surrender. So that's what it, it kind of came to. It's very ugly, very ugly yeah. history. And at the time... Um, real quick, huh? after, since we're getting... Um, done with uh, World War II. I wanted to show a clip um, that has to directly, do, directly, um, how do I say, it's, it was directly because of Mexicans who were, who came over to help us fight mm -hmm. during World War II that these laws were made. So let me just show this quick yeah. little video. Make sure that you have your, uh, your, earbuds out so we can hear yeah no i don't i'm not using them okay rope clothes food oils even one of the first forms of paper we know this because there's hieroglyphs depicting its uses and it's even been found in graves with shamans this is one of the first written medical prescriptions for cannabis uh it's on a clay tablet so fast forward to the 1600s when the colonizers arrive in what we now call america a lot of colonies like virginia massachusetts connecticut required their farmers to grow hemp but it was still mostly used for making things and trading then in the mid 1800s this irish doctor named sir william found that cannabis helps with vomiting and stomach pain in cholera patients by the late 1800s cannabis extracts were being sold in doctors' office and pharmacies for medicinal purposes. It was mainly 
only being used as a painkiller, but it was in a lot of medications. But nobody really smoked it yet. In the early 1900s, Mexicans started fleeing Mexico because of the Mexican Revolution. And they were the ones that were like, hey, yo, by the way, you can smoke it. Because cannabis became associated with Mexican immigrants and people were mad xenophobic, everybody began to fear the drug, which they called the Mexican menace. It was around this time that the name cannabis was changed to marijuana. This tied the plants used to people that they believed were inferior, AKA Mexicans. So 26 states easily passed laws prohibiting the devil's lettuce. Then in the 1930s, the Great Depression hit and people started losing their jobs left and right. A lot of people blame Mexicans for taking their jobs, which doesn't even make sense, but okay. So people became even more xenophobic. Then the media began to report that cannabis was linked to people of color, which meant that you were a violent criminal. So Harry Anslinger, the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, began a campaign to criminalize cannabis. He claimed that the plant led to insanity. Then in 1936, the film Reefer Madness came out. This depicted cannabis users as basically psychotics. But in 1944, the New York Academy of Medicine published a report saying basically like y'all chill, uh, you're being really dramatic, it's not that serious. But the Boggs Act was still passed, which made cannabis related offenses a super serious crime. In the 1960s, people started realizing that cannabis is basically harmless, but Congress still passed the Controlled Substances Act. This classified cannabis as a Schedule One drug, which was right in line with opiates and all the other hard stuff. From then on, presidents like Reagan, Nixon, and Bush kept fueling this whole cannabis is evil thing. Obviously that was drilled into our parents' and grandparents' heads and that got passed down. My guess is that these guys knew hemp could produce way more energy than the oil industry without polluting the environment, but then how would the rich keep getting richer, you know? Also hemp has 50,000 uses and it could probably save our economy, just saying. If the cannabis plant has been used Just saying. I mean, it has to do with Mexican-American immigrants and Mexicans and stuff like that and how people were very xenophobic back then. Because yeah. it's like, yeah, we widely use it, but now we found out that y'all are smoking it. Oh my God, that's so bad. We have to ban it, like, now. <laughs> For clothing, oil, everything, paper, like, and it'll, like, be way better for the environment. Uh-huh. So. Very interesting. Interesting. So... For the millions of returning veterans, the adjustment back to civilian life was difficult. So for African and Latino Americans in particular, there was a sufficient difficulty transitioning from being war heroes and liberators in Europe back into second-class citizens in the race-segregated United States. So what do you think, Ruby? I think it was back to normal, like yep. like any other time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for your services, but you're still shit. <laughs> <laughs> so African Americans had sought to address some of these discrepancies in their double V campaign. Meanwhile, Mexican Americans began their own fight for civil rights at home. The historian Thomas A. Guglielmo, uh, Guglielmo. Guglielmo. <laughs> what? You having a hard time with that name? I can't tell if this is an I or, a, or an L. So, uh, okay. He wrote, Patriotic sacrifice and service only further fired Mexicans and Mexican-Americans' determination to gain first-class citizenship. Returning Mexican-Americans challenged and discrimination and segregation in many ways, including by sitting in white-only sitting sections in town theaters, demanding service at white restaurants and attempting to enter segregated public pools. In one notorious instance, Macario Garcia received the Medal of Honor in a ceremony at the White House, and less than a month later, he was reviewed surface service at the Oasis Cafe in Richmond, Texas, because of his race. 
but we need to be taking care of our veterans, Nate. As long as they're white, though. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really make any our sense. Vets. Huh? I said, what about our vets? Yeah, I know, man. They seem to do a lot of, th they say a lot of things and then do something else. So he refused to leave the cafe and the police were called. And Garcia was arrested and charged with aggravated assault. In Arizona, the governor named August 14th, 1945, an honor after, uh, after another Medal of Honor recipient, Sylvester uh, Herrera, Coverage of the event was marred, however, by the governor's need to request Phoenix businesses to take down signs barring Mexicans. Discrimination against returning Mexican-American veterans hurt the prospects of the entire Mexican-American community. While medical, financial, and educational benefits from the GI Bill helped lift millions of white families into the growing Mexican middle class, and the application of the bill's benefits to block and Mexican to uh to, of the bill's benefits to black and Mexican American veterans was uneven. As a result, the Mexican American community did not ever gain full economic and political equal, uh, equality in the post-war era. Rather than not being surprising. yeah. Rather than being simply exclusionatory, however, the GI Bill had several important failings which resulted in its discriminatory outcomes. The bill offered loan guarantees, yet few banks honored such guarantees to non-right veterans. And for those who did, restrictive racial co uh, co uh, covenants meant that the black and Mexican-American veterans were only able to live in red line neighborhoods where property values were often remained low. So what makes you think about that? Um, redlining is a very, very big um, subject that needs to be widely learned. So I'm glad that we're touching base on that because a lot of people nowadays will say, oh, you know, everybody's fine. You know, that happened a long time ago, but they fail to see the effects that came from such segregation and from redlining and the fact that um, these are all causes, you know, housing, pop, you know, um, proper housing, proper health care, proper education, all of those things that were not given um, in those redlining districts, that all leads to gang, gangs, you know, gangs developing, mm -hmm. violence, crime, all of that and so that's very important because we all know that this whole time that police have been around there's never been an end to crime no matter how many police you've had no matter how many police you've paid or uh, how much equipment or guns you give them crime is not going to stop until you actually address those problems that lead to crime and, and the, the, those are some of those, you know, that's a direct effect of that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, furthermore, many Mexican-American veterans complained about common contemporary... Oh, actually, they complained about consist, consistently late tuition disbursements, which forced them to drop out of their job training and university programs, and reports of outright racism within the VA were common. So, contemporary scholars have found... 
that overall the GI Bill did not profound, profoundly alter the uh, occupational profile of all Mexicans and its immediate impact on upward mobility among families was inconsistent. So some of the issues were challenged directly. In 1948, the Corpus Christi physician Hector P. Garcia founded the American GI Forum in order to demand equal rights to GI benefits. Medical care, burial rights, disregrade, uh, dis desegregated education, and other civil rights. In, the fa in a famous early instance of the foreign civil rights advocacy, Garcia took up a case of private Felix uh, Longoria of, of Three Rivers, Texas. Longoria died in combat in 1945, but his remains weren't shipped home for several years. When they finally arrived, his widow, Beatrice, went to the local funeral home to plan a wake in his honor. The funeral home director refused to allow the family to use the chapel because of their race. The director told the media at the time that he would never allow Mexican-Americans to use his facilities, saying, We just never made it, made it a practice to let them use the chapel, and we don't want to start now. For what reason? Uh, Other than the fact that they're Mexican. That's it. That's the only reason. That's a good enough reason. Right. Yeah. This person is literally dead and served. Yeah, but he doesn't you want know? to let them do it. <laughs> he doesn't want to let their gr like, grieving family have, have practice. against that? Like, how can you be so hateful, so ugly, you know? Yeah, I bet it's the weed that you mentioned earlier. <laughs> I'm trying to make it tie into everything so it's not, like, random. Like this random thing that we showed. It wasn't random. Okay. That girl, first of all, is a Hispana. She's Hispanic. Yeah. And she did her research on the effects of xenophobia, which tie into Mexicans. Yeah. And it's Hispanic Heritage Month, so I think that that was a really important lesson yeah. for everybody. <laughs> yeah, we need And we it's need to that the point where need. we're decriminalizing, you know, cannabis all over the state. We already. need that weed, man. <laughs> no, it's not even about that. Like, we need to substitute it for, you know, paper and so we stop cutting down all these trees that we need yeah. for oxygen and oil so that we stop burning fossil fuels, which is leading to climate change. Like, it's so much, so many things. Actually, I don't think trees actually are the number one producers of oxygen. I think it's something else. Let me see. Well, I mean, they're a... They're a big producer i mean i don't know if they're the main producers but like they are a big thing what what is it though it's gonna bother me if we're i don't we're getting off topic <laughs> oh it's uh it's plankton plankton yeah the yeah more than half the oxygen on earth is produced by these tiny one-celled plants on the surface of the ocean called phyto phytoplankton and they have a picture of plankton from SpongeBob. <coughs> but yeah, it's still very important. We don't want all the trees. We don't want all the trees to go away. Exactly. We still need the trees. Um, so yeah, it's more than just us showing it randomly. Yeah. I mean, also, trees are living beings as well. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I just want to go into um, Mexico, like what's happening in Mexico yeah. post um, World War II. Um, in 1946, we have the first civilian president of Mexico, 
So um, a person who wasn't person. like an army person. Right, because they were mostly generals and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, we had a civilian in um, Francisco Madero, but that was in 1911. Mm -hmm. So um, there's only been two in the history of Mexico's government. So this Miguel Alemán becomes um, a civilian president in 1946. Um, and post-World War II, Mexico undergoes great industrial and economic growth even as the gap continues to grow between the richest and poorest segments of the population. Mm -hmm. So the ruling government party that um, is founded in 1929 is renamed the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, which is PRI. Um, and it will continue, it's the government, the party that continues its dominance in Mexico for the next 50 years. Mm. It's a long time. It's half a century. Yeah. So they obviously don't have term limits over there <laughs> at that time. Yeah, I don't think we had term limits here either because I think Rose Roosevelt served six terms. No, yeah. He served four terms. So he certainly, he, oh, wow. he was president for 16 years. Okay. Well, that's still not as bad as 50. Yeah, I know. 50 is, <laughs> like, a lot longer. 16 is, like, yeah. less, like, a bit more than half of that. So. Yeah, so it's it's that government party um, that they refer to as the PRI that mm -hmm. rules for the next 50 years. And, like, like it's mentioned, their, their economic growth and industrial growth is, like, growing because they're have, they have ties now with foreign countries like U.S. and stuff like that that mm -hmm. come and grow stuff over there, um, you know, they have that relationship, but it doesn't help. It still doesn't help, you know, the poorest segments of the country. So right. they're still not getting any help. And imagine that going on for 50 years. It's a lot of years. Yeah. So, uh, so the thing about like the, going back to this whole deal with the, uh, with the chapel denying service to this family, uh, so Garcia, when Garcia found out about that situation, he was outraged, Ruby. He was outraged. And immediately, yeah, and immediately sent letters of protest to the media, elected politicians and government officials. One of these letters was sent to Texas junior Senator Lyndon B. Johnson, who arranged for uh, Longoria to receive full honors and burial at Arlington National Cemetery. The Longoria incident pushed the American GI Forum into the forefront of the post-war Mexican-American civil rights strategy. The forum, alongside LULAC and El Congreso, greatly expanded their operations after World War II and began their fights to end segregation. So that's the next big thing they got that we got to end, is segregation. Yep. Mm-hmm. So in the 1940s, there were two major court cases involving the civil rights of Mexican-Americans. The first, Mendez versus Westminster, involved Gonzalo Mendez, a naturalized U.S. citizen born in Mexico, and his Puerto Rican wife, uh, Felicitas, who joined the four American families, who joined, uh, who joined four Mexican-American families to sue four Orange County school districts. The families challenged the common California practices of drawing school boundaries around majority of Mexican-American neighborhoods and of placing Mexicans who lived in the majority white communities who segregated Spanish remedial schools. 
During the trial, the Orange County superintendents justified school segregation because the Mexican-American children had inferior personal hygiene. Come on. The same government that wasn't allowing the prisoners to change their yeah. clothing. Yeah, so his big reason was, oh, they're, they're smelly. That's his, that's his reason. <laughs> So, they also have inferior scholastic ability and economic outlook. Which, and that certainly can't be changed, right? I mean, they're smelly. They're going to stay smelly. There's no way to change that. There's nothing such as soap or cleanliness mm -hmm. or anything else, right? It's yeah. just an issue that will not go away. Yeah. They also said that they had inferior scholastic ability and economic outlook, which is a weird way of saying that they're poor and dumb. They're poor for a reason because y'all kept them poor. Because uh -huh. <laughs> of the redlining thing? <laughs> so on the plaintiff's side, the constitutionally of uh, the constitution that's still not huh? a reason to be segregated. It's like they're poor and dumb. Okay, so help them. That's why they go to school. It's, it's mostly the smelly thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, on the plaintiff's side, the constitutionality of educational segregation was questioned on the basis of the 14th Amendment, and social scientists were brought in as expert witnesses to dispute the, suppo the supposed educational benefits of segregated schools. In 1946, Judge Paul McCormick ruled that school segregation was a clear denial of the Equal Protection Clause, and the next year, McCormick's decision was upheld by the U.S. Court of Appeals. The Mendez case was significant for several reasons, including the support of the NAACP counsel Thurgood Marshall. The plaintiff's revolutionary use of social scientific research as a basis for law. The legal precedent making educational segregation as in of as unconstitutional and the case's influence for the Anderson bill which repealed California school segregation what do you say about that good job seems like we're finally getting somewhere mm -hmm. so the second major civil rights court victory for Mexican Americans also occurred in California Andrea Perez, who was a Mexican-American, and Sylvester Davis, who was an African-American, had met and developed a friendship immediately before he was drafted to fight in World War II. When he returned, they resumed their relationship, fell in love, and married. At the time, California's anti-miscegenation code barred interracial marriage. Perez and Davis hired a civil rights attorney, Dan Marshall, to represent them in challenging the band. When the Los Angeles County clerk denied them a marriage license, Perez formally filed suit. In 1948, the California Supreme Court ruled in favor of the couple, becoming the first state in the country to overturn a ban on interracial marriage. Yay! Yeah. Love wins! Yeah. The I love happy love stories. Mm -hmm. So, the decision in part relied on arguments based on the inability of the law to account for Mexican, uh, I have no idea what this is. Oh, mastije. A mis, I have no idea what that says. 
You're going to have to look it up. Okay. <laughs> Let me look it up real quick. Google is your friend. Yeah, one second. Okay. Mestizaje. Mestizaje. Okay. What is what does that mean? Like what does that term mean? Mestizaje? It means mixed race. <clears throat> so the court, noting Perez, in between racial status, ruled that blanket bans on interracial marriage were too vague and uncertain, since uh, they did not consider people who were of mixed ancestry. Also, majority opinion found that the law also violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Earl Warren was then the governor of California and oversaw the legal implementation of the ruling in his state in the state 19 years later he served as chief justice in loving versus virginia <clears throat> the u.s supreme court case that struck down all remaining state bans on interracial marriage and that's that what do you think about that but there were several other states that still had it banned. Yeah. And the struggles continued for a lot of interracial couples, specifically when it had to do with a Caucasian and an African American. Yeah. There's a whole movie that I watched. Um, what is it called? It's the one with Matthew McConaughey. I have no uh, idea. Uh, he he won a lot of war. Well, he he portrayed somebody that had a group of soldiers um, who were neither Confederate nor Union soldiers oh, during the Civil War. You're talking about the Free State of Davis. think so, yes. There's a movie about that. And oh, the Free State of Jones. Yeah, the Free State of Jones. That sounds more like it, yeah. And it's centered around that story, but it's because they are in a court setting with this with this guy who's on trial for being married to a white woman and them saying you know you're mixed you have african-american in you even though he is like he looks super white like he's his his skin is white like really white he has blue eyes and just because they found evidence of back then who his father was and the fact that his father's had um, a relationship with um, a, a, a black, an African-American, I think she was a slave, but he ended up like being with her, like he loved her. And so they're having to go through all of that history while he's in the courtroom and they end up ruling against him. Like they end up saying, no, just because you're this much mixed, with african-american you cannot be married i don't know the Crazy. reviews don't lie i mean i'm not saying it's a good movie i'm just saying like it talks about that story if you want to watch if you want to watch and a... that was in the 80s that was in the 80s yeah. that they were trying to tell him that he had no right um there's if you also wanna... another movie about uh famous interracial 
couple. If you want to watch a good movie about interracial couples, watch the movie Loving. Yes, that's the one that I was talking about right now. Yeah. That's a really another really good movie too. Watch the movie Loving. Because mm-hmm. that's uh, it's on Netflix right now, and it's an actually good movie, <laughs> unlike the other one that Ruby says. Well, if you like Matthew McConaughey, all right, all right, all, all right, right, all right, all right. Then you're gonna watch both because of that. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, I'm trying to pull this up. Plus, but... it's also like I love the way that it shows that history because it's like he was trying to fight against the Confederate army. But they were so small, him and his group of soldiers, that the Union wouldn't even recognize them as, uh, you know, as part of their army. And he was literally fighting with whatever they could scrape up because the Union wouldn't send them anything to help, even though they were winning several battles for the Union. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to um, acknowledge them. And then him and his soldiers that were mixed up of african-americans and american soldiers um who i they show that dynamic too where they have drama and then they end up you know being friends because they fought together so i like seeing that and then they all went to go vote like they show where they all go to vote in texas and it's so funny because the way they have the voting set up back then it's like literally two glass jars and all of you know you just put a paper in one or the other and so when they got there, mostly everybody that was white and a man had voted and they were all in one jar. And so whenever Matthew McConaughey and his crew came, they started filling up the other jar and then they show at the end the results and they put that no one had voted in the other jar. What so was they the... show how they used to rig elections even back then. What was the what was the what were they voting on? They were voting on who was going to be, I guess, over their state, whatever state they were at. I forgot what it Like the governor? Basically who it was. Yeah, the governor or something of the state. Okay. But they were basically showing how they went and cast their votes, but they didn't even count them. Yeah. So let's look at a photo of an interracial couple who were allowed to marry due to the Perez versus Sharp case. So let's give them a look-see. So here, here they are. So this is Leon Watson. Yeah. And Rosina Rodriguez, and then an interracial couple who were allowed to marry because of the Perez versus Sharp. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I said. Yeah. I'm just reading the caption on the photo. Damn. <laughs> and they look very happy. They look very lovely. Love wins. <laughs> Very nice. You get a thumbs up. So yeah, that's basically everything revolving around World War II and the post-war era. So that's where we'll end it today. Um, and a little bit about weed or something. I don't even know. <laughs> Why do you make that seem like it's not important? No, it's very important. You're right. All knowledge. It's very important. Mm-hmm. That's what I say. Yeah, because knowledge is power. So thank you to everyone who has tuned in so far. I know that we've had several segments of this, but that's because we're covering a lot. I mm-hmm. mean, we are going to go up until, you know, now. Or, I mean, 
present day, I guess. Yeah. Um, but thank you for being with us along this journey of learning because I always say that, you know, learning, continuing to grow, you know, um, shaping misconceptions that you had before about a lot of things, you know, I think that's really important in everybody's individual growth. So, All right. So next time we're going to go into the mid 20th century. Uh, so we're going to go into things like the Korean War, the Bracero Program, and what is known as Operation Wetback. I wonder, oh what, I wonder what that is. Um, so yeah, that's what we're going to do. And if we have time, we might also go into the Chicano movement, which is really interesting. And don't forget we had, well, I'm pretty sure it's going to, we're going to talk about that whole uh, mass deportation that happened again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because we're going to go into the, uh, the 1950s and stuff. And then Ruby will tell us about the mass deportation that she's been uh, like teasing us with for the past couple episodes. Am I right, Ruby? Yeah, so it's going to be really good. So it's yeah. not the end of yeah. discrimination yet. Oh, yeah. So what do you think about this whole thing that happened in World War II and the post-war era? Um, I think it's a bunch of hypocrisy again. Like you said, they always say that they're going to do something, but then they don't honor it when it comes to people of color. Mm. And it's it's very ugly. Yeah. Ugly that they do that. I mean, they wouldn't even allow this man to be to have a service. You know, they didn't even ship his body over. I mean, like, can you imagine how outraged mm. people would be? You know, if that happened to them, and you know, people would raise hell you know yeah. it wasn't even his they body, didn't even yeah. do that she had to wait till they shipped her husband over and then at that she had a hard time trying to even plan a, a burial you know for them to be able to finally fully grieve you know yeah and it wasn't even his body it was his ashes yeah so they couldn't like send an urn again we face the ugly truths of history mm -hmm. but very important it's very important to learn the ugly truths of history because otherwise we would be doomed to repeat it I um, am i right ruby and that's why right, and that's why we need the weeds <laughs> and that's this moral of our story <laughs> cannabis is good oil bad oil bad fossil oh. fuels bad yeah I, I want to get an electric car because I think the technology is getting there. I think we finally reached the part that I can finally be able to use an electric car. Yeah, I want them to like put make it more accessible because mm -hmm. and I think they don't have it as more as accessible right now because there's not that many people that have electric cars. But yeah. I do see that that economy is growing. That, oh, yeah, this is growing. Yeah, the electric car market is, is finally getting there. Um, we just need to get more charging stations. If we had as much charging stations as we do gas stations, we would be good. And I don't, I don't know how much it costs to charge something like that. As long as it like is in a competitive with the gas market, we should be good. But I heard it, it's really expensive. But I heard, yeah. Yeah. We also need to switch our electricity um, away from burning fossil fuels. Yeah. I mean, there's other ways like geothermal, um, you know, grabbing er uh, heat from the earth itself other than burning up fossil fuels. Yeah. Because if you know about fossil fuels, you know that it takes longer 
to make fossil fuels than to use them up and oh, yeah. we're going to be in trouble soon yeah well, that's why we need the wind turbines we need the solar panels mm-hmm. and most importantly we need the weeds <laughs> hemp the hemp and the cannabis hemp is the answer hemp is the answer Yep. You know who my favorite stooge is? It's Shemp Howard. Why? Because it's supposed to be a joke on hemp because he's, I think he's supposed to be like high or something. I don't know. I don't even. I don't know. I didn't watch it. Remember the stooges that much? I don't remember. I didn't watch it. It came out in the 1930s. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that was World War II. So yeah, that was really, 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 really interesting stuff, and it was very important to learn, especially with all the discrimination and stuff that we that we had to go through with the Zoot Suit Riots and the Sleepy Lagoon murder. Um, yes, and it's great to uplift those who advocated for us, um, especially during Hispanic Heritage Month. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so you know refreshing to hear the stories about those who fought the good fight mm-hmm. you know for everyone really yeah. for the betterment of society we never did find out who murdered that guy what guy remember the guy that was murdered and then the police kind of just blamed a bunch of people and then convicted them because they were racist oh right that's what i'm saying like more solutions that don't really solve the crime or the problem and they just end up making more problems for other people and then it turns you know people to you know hate the government and the police and things like that because they know for certain that they're not on our side right so yeah so that was world war ii pushes them into the arms of anti i mean of uh, rebellions such as gangs and stuff yeah that's what the zoot suit thing was about it was supposed to be like an anti-establishment type thing but it's because they were tired. They were tired mm-hmm. of being treated like shit. Yeah, I mean, it's tired not... Tired of seeing their moms and dads treated like shit. Yeah, and it's not that uncommon. I mean, lots of teenagers and college students were, would do stuff like that, even back in, like, the 1960s with the hippie revolution and stuff like that. And, heck, even even now today with the Zoomers using TikTok as, like, their own personal thing to conduct a bunch of stuff with. Um, remember that time when they, uh, bought a bunch of Trump tickets in Tulsa and they just didn't go and then they got really mad? The Gen Z? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Remember the, and then Trump got really mad and then tried to ban TikTok? Yeah. And then I saw just recently that they all got together to, um, crash the whistleblower site. Yes, they also did that. <laughs> they also crashed the abortion whistleblower site. Yeah. Which is, I don't know why they even did that um because they're being rebellious you know no not that like i don't know why that even existed in the first place oh the whistleblower yeah. website because mm-hmm. they're ugly because it sounds like they say whistleblower but it sounds like they want us to rat people out and like collect bounties on them that's exactly what it is mm. that's not nice no because they're only putting the bounties on women <laughs> It, when it comes down to it so it's like men don't exist at all when it comes to pregnancy and that's not true oh yeah it's very not true <laughs> it takes two I to mean, tango in that case we're not getting ourselves pregnant <laughs> uh unless you do like artificial insemination but not a lot of times 
that happens. That's really not what they're talking about. I mean, yeah. if you're doing artificial insemination and then you're going to get an abortion, that makes no sense. That doesn't make any sense. So that they wouldn't even do that. Right. Yeah. So that yeah. Costs a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, it costs a lot of money. So yeah, that was that's that's our story for today. So we'll continue on part seven with the mid twentieth century. All right. Lucky did you have number seven? Yeah. Did you have a good time today, Ruby? I always have a good time learning about history, no matter how ugly it is. It's just it's overwhelming and it's draining, but we're here now and all I can say is it's not that bad as it was. Yeah, but it could be better. Oh yeah, we still have yes. a lot of work to do. Yeah. That's that's not what I mean, but it is not as bad. We don't have people stripping little boys naked in the streets at least just because they looked at it funny just because they raised up their hand yeah <laughs> in a threatening way in a threatening way and he was really mad because he got his nose broke yeah and then he was like you know what i'm gonna act totally violent and overdo it and over exaggerate my yeah. response to this and then the press was like good job and then, right, the, and then the lapd was like we'll help you we'll help you and then that was that so that's why we need to change ruby mm. we got to do this thing and it starts with you ruby yeah it starts with all of us yeah. sharing love not hate and being considerate of everyone um being responsible for our own actions and our responsibilities exactly mm -hmm. so well that's it for today we'll see you guys uh next time okay yes, i've been nathaniel we'll see you on next time yep i've been nathaniel avila and i'm ruby and i just want to say share love not hate share love not hate all yes. right bye, bye. Thank you for listening to A Vision Podcast, home of Wacky Talkies, The Kingdom, Evil Exists, and many more.